you uh, brought a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to Matthew and uh, find your way to chapter 11. If you don't have one, you'll find them in the racks there in front of you and you can use that one. And if you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles. You see me or some of uh, the staff after church will make sure you get a free Bible. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. I want to pray with you, but uh, make your way to Matthew chapter 11 and uh, we'll pray and then we'll start. Let's bow together. Father, we, we do indeed bow our heads before you uh, symbolically, just recognizing your majesty and your awe and your splendor. But inside our hearts uh, who have known you are just busting, feeling the sense of joy and, and the promise that we are free. We're free in you. And because we're free in you and your, your spirit indwells us, we have your presence with us. We ask that you would use the Holy Spirit who resides within us to be our teacher and our guide, and that you would show us in your way the things that you want us to understand. Help us to see very, very clearly how you want to speak to each of us individually this morning. And we would ask this in, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. I had a, a young dad here at the church text me um, about two weeks ago, and he said, hey, I was uh, putting my eight-year-old son to bed tonight, and um, he began praying for you, and he prayed, um, dear God, help Pastor Mark to teach the things you want him to say and not the things man wants him to say. Wow, big deal for an eight-year-old. Um, see if I can do that. Uh, and so we'll look at this text this morning. Um, I, I'm very mindful that w- where we're going with this could indeed make you feel as though you're encountering God this morning, that you're not hearing from man, and that's my real desire, that you will understand why I chose this particular passage, and I'll expand on that in just a minute. Anybody here feeling a particular amount of extra weight this morning? And and I don't mean the weight that you picked up from fudge, okay? (laughs) We can all identify with that, right? We're going to pay the price in the next couple weeks. Too much sweets in the house. Um, Specifically, Scripture talks about how we're supposed to bring our, our weights, our burdens to God. To specifically, Jesus said, bring them to me, and I'll give you rest from the burdens that you're carrying. My premise is life is hard enough without somebody or something adding extra weight to you, and yet we find ourselves living in a day and age when we have extra burdens placed on us. I think you'll track with me where I'm going by looking at this passage on the screen. Matthew 11:28 says this, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus makes a promise. I will give you rest. You come to me, I'll give you something in return. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the kind of thing that most people want. That kind of weight that keeps you up at two in the morning, that mental struggle, Jesus says, bring it to me. I'll give you soul rest. Pretty remarkable promise. I've never in my life heard of any world leader invite people to bring them their problems. Okay? Jesus is the only one. He says, bring it to me. You got problems? Bring it to me. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's understand this in the context of why Jesus made that statement. 
and we're going to be moving into Matthew 12 into a story of an event that took place. Jesus has hundreds of people gathered before him when he makes this statement in Matthew 11. And he's telling them literally, stop listening to the Pharisees, stop listening to the Sadducees, start listening to me for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, pay attention to my teaching, it'll free you up. So here's the background. In the first century world of Jesus, there was one thing that was exalted above all others, and that one thing was ritual or tradition. The the ritual of how you were to do things and how you were not to do things. And those traditions took over their life. And so within that world of ritualism, two things trumped all others. The ritual of how they conducted themselves on the Sabbath, or as you'll see in a minute, it's called the Shabbat, and the temple. One being a weekly function, a weekly ritual. For them, it was Saturday. And the other thing being a physical property, a physical location, the temple. Now, the, the respect of the Sabbath is rooted in a good thing. Understand it comes from the Ten Commandments. If you're not familiar with church, you've certainly heard of the Ten Commandments. Well, this is one of them. Exodus 20, verse 8 says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's part of the Ten Commandments that God gave And even if you don't know the creation story, you know that at the end of the creation, after God created for six days, we're told that He rested. Now certainly God doesn't need to take a rest in the sense of needing to be restored to strength. He doesn't need that to be refreshed. What is He talking about here? Well, the rest, Shabbat, you'll see this word on the screen. I want you to see it in the Hebrew language. It means to cease from activity. It was intended to be a celebration, a a day of rejoicing in what God had done. So God said, I'm going to take this seventh day on which I ceased working, and I want you to remember it as a holy day, a Shabbat, because it's a reminder for you of everything that I accomplished. First day, it's good. Second day, it's good. Third day, it's good. Fourth day, it's good. Fifth day, it's good. Sixth day, it's very good. Rejoice in that. Take your confidence in me. Rest in me because I did all that. Now, somewhere along the line, man decided that God needed some help, that God needed to have help in clarifying just exactly what he meant by taking it easy on Shabbat, on this Sabbath day. So man started coming up with a whole bunch of rules to clarify just what God meant by that because apparently God wasn't clear enough in their world. So Shabbat observance really started with individuals getting together saying, we need some more clarification about what did God mean when he said, remember that day and keep it holy. So for hundreds of years, the rabbinical schools got together and the rabbis and a group of individuals later known as the Pharisees got together and they came up with rules of do's and don'ts, things you could do and couldn't do. They actually orchestrated an oral tradition known as the Talmud. And within the Talmud, they passed on all of these rules and regulations. Eventually, it got written down and it came out that it was 24 chapters long. What God had said in one sentence, man expanded into 24 chapters with thousands upon thousands of rules of how you could conduct yourself on what is known as Shabbat. Here's a few of them just in case you're curious. If you were to pick up any of your goods on Shabbat day, which began at sunset on Friday night and ended at sunset on Saturday night, you couldn't pick up anything heavier than the weight of a dried fig. 
Now, how they came up with that, I don't know. So that immediately ruled out the ability to wear false teeth on Shabbat because false teeth weighed more than a dried fig. So a lot of people going around gumming it on Shabbat, okay? Another rule that came into effect, you couldn't walk more than 3,000 feet. Where they came up with that, I don't know. But because that became so cumbersome to people, they instituted a a bylaw to the primary law of don't walk more than 3,000 feet, which said this, if you take a plate of food from your house on Friday afternoon, knowing that you're going to need food on Shabbat, and you walk 3,000 feet and you deposit that food, the next day on Shabbat, you're allowed to walk 3,000 feet and eat that meal, and that meal, therefore, has become an extension of your home. And so you're allowed another 3,000 feet. Now, another rule that came in along fact, uh, effect of that was the fact that if your house was limited as being your primary residence, but yet you needed to get over to your neighbor's house back and forth, you could actually tie a rope between your house and your neighbor's house, and therefore their house became an extension of your house, and so none of the feet in between counted. You didn't have to count those against you. Now, some of the most restrictive rules came along the dietary lines, the things you could eat and couldn't eat, things like how to harvest grain, whether or not you could even pick up grain on Shabbat day. Women were forbidden from looking in mirrors on Sabbath day. How'd you like that, ladies? Never get to look at a mirror at all for 24 hours period of time. Why? Because there's a chance you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. And that would make you work. You'd be lifting labor, lifting your hands to carry out some form of work. Now, some of the most restrictive rules I told you came along the lines of food, but also came along the lines of medicine. Medicine specifically in terms of if someone was determined to be dying, you could give them enough medicine to keep them alive, enough medical treatment, only to get them through to the next day when you could really work on them. But if their life was not in jeopardy, You can't touch them. You can't render any aid towards them. That even was extended to taking baths on Shabbat. It was forbidden to take a bath on Shabbat because if you got into the water and you cleansed yourself, and by the way, if you splashed water on the floor, you may be washing the floor accidentally, and you wouldn't want that because that would be work. Now, Orthodox Jews today have even carried out some of that into their world as as we live in 2015. By that, I mean... It was forbidden to light fires on Shabbat, so that carried forward into modern daytime, and individuals were told that means you can't operate light switches in your house. So modern-day Orthodox Jews have set their homes up with regulated timers to turn their lights on and off for them. And if they forget to do that, what they have to do is contact one of their local Gentiles to come over to their house and turn a switch on for them because they can't do it themselves. See how restrictive this became? And the problem with it is is that Keeping the Sabbath caused people so much anxiety. Shabbat became anything but a time of rest. It became a time of anxiousness. Am I breaking the rules or am I keeping the rules? How am I actually not going to disobey God? Now, if you know anything about Jesus whatsoever, you know that he dismantled man-made traditions. That's exactly what Jesus did when he came on the scene. Affectionately, we would call man-made traditions today religion things that we have instituted as rituals, saying, you do this, you do this, you do this, and it will make you closer to God. So when Jesus disturbed traditions, you know he struck raw nerves. That's why I want to take you into Matthew 12 this morning, because he strikes a few raw nerves. There's an incident in Matthew 12 that's repeated in the book of Mark and in the book of Luke, and Jesus has made a charge. 
His charge that he's laid at the Pharisees' feet is, you have laid burdens upon people that are impossible for them to keep. You have shackled them when we intended for them to be free. So pick it up with me in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. That day should catch your attention. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, right away, you're going to start saying, well, I wonder what in the world were the Pharisees doing in the grain field on Sabbath? Why were they there in the first place? Well, I'm thinking right away, they're like paparazzi. They're following around the big star of the day, waiting for him to screw up so they can snap a picture. They're stalking him. They're looking for something to go wrong. That's just my guess. Now, understand the background on the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the professionals in the legal system. There are professionals of the professors of law. That's their claim to fame. They know the Old Testament inside and out. Everything that God gave is law. They know it and they can recite it. So for Jesus to ask the lawyers if they've ever read the text is like a slap in the face. Have you, have you not read about David? That's his question to them. It's his way of saying, your question is really elementary. Haven't you even read the law? You want to slap some professors of the law in the face, that's the question you would ask them. So that would incite some degree of anger for them. Well, their anger turns to rage when he gets to verse 6, and he says, by the way, something greater than the temple is here. Here's what Jesus is contending. There's a greater development that has arrived, much more important than your laws, much more important than the temple, And he's inferring himself, but maybe they haven't picked up on that yet. So let's go back to verse 6. I say to you that something greater than the temple is here, verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. Now he's just quoted the Old Testament, but what he's doing here is he's declaring the disciples are innocent. So what if they've picked grains? So what if they've picked a little bit off the stalk? to eat. They're innocent. Have you not read what David did? So the accusers are now becoming the accused. Now, if they haven't understood Jesus is referring to himself, at this point, they're horrified because nothing is regarded as greater than the temple than God himself. And this one has just said something greater than the temple is here. Now, if they're confused, he removes all doubt in just a moment. What Jesus is doing is rebuking the Pharisees for their failure to understand God's Word. So he's reaching all the way back into the Old Testament, and he's quoting them their own law, Hosea 6.6. This is the quote, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So here's his claim. The Pharisees have not really grasped the significance of, of what God has asked them to do. And so the innocence of the disciples is established on the ground. Something greater is here. 
Something greater that can overrule all this. In other words, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he actually says in verse 8. So you see this up on the screen? This is the way that he said it. For the Son of Man is the Lord of Shabbat. So what has been implied by something greater than the temple is here has just now been made absolutely unmistakable. And that had to reduce the Pharisees to this jaw-dropping expression of what did you hear what he just said jesus is literally standing before them saying i am greater than the temple i am greater than your tradition god's sabbath the claim is absolutely implicit he's placing the son of man in the position to determine what to do with the sabbath and what not to do with it that it was never intended for this myriad of legalistic rules It was intended for celebration. Now, there's a reason why I'm teaching before communion this morning, so that you really understand what's going on here. Celebration of communion that we're about to participate in plays a major role in this story. So let me just rabbit trail with you for just a moment. Observing Sabbath was intended to be a reminder of God's completion of creation. Let me just do it with you again. Day one, it's good. Day two, it's good. Day three, day four, day five, day six, it's very good. God, Shabbat, ceased from his creative activity. And then comes the Ten Commandments. God says, remember Shabbat and keep it holy. For in it, the Lord God rested, ceased from his activity. What's God saying in that? that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, all reaches back into honoring Shabbat, Sabbath, because it's God literally saying, rest in me. Look at everything that I've done for you. I've given it all to you. You can rest in me. That's the Sabbath day in the way in which it's honored. So it's really important for us to understand this. It's important for Christians to know that the Sabbath is a sign of the Old Covenant. It's God's way of saying, you can take confidence in me. It is not the sign of the New Covenant. The sign of the New Covenant is what you're about to participate in in just a few minutes. So we need to be really, really clear on that. So the Old Covenant sign, looking back to creation. God saying, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, rest in me. In other words, I have this. No worries. Bring your burdens to me. The new covenant, however, fulfills the old covenant because the old covenant was pointing forward to this promised one who would be coming eventually, who would take away all of our burdens, all of our cares, all of our worries. Well, the New Testament says very clearly that Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. So what does the new covenant do? The new covenant looks forward to the permanent eternal rest when we enter into eternity. That's what God wants to make clear to us. So just in case you're a little muddy on this, I captured a quote for you from John MacArthur who taught on almost this very same subject. But let me show you one paragraph from his teaching. Because the Lord of the Sabbath had come, the shadow of his Sabbath rest was no longer needed or valid. The New Testament does not require Sabbath observance 
but rather allows freedom as to whether or not any day is honored above others. The only requirement is that whatever position is taken, it is taken for the purpose of glorifying the Lord, and no believer has the right to impose his views in this regard on anyone else. I'm going to back it up with Scripture. Colossians 2.16. Paul's writing to the New Testament church says, just so you get it clear, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Shabbat. Why is that so significant to us? Because the sign of the new covenant is the cup. When Jesus held up the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you drink it, you remember me and you proclaim that I'm coming again when you'll enter into eternal rest. So we've got the two signs, the Old Covenant, Shabbat, the New Covenant is the cup. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Now, without waiting for a response of any kind, Jesus walks away from the Pharisees, but we're told he walks right into their lair. He walks right into a synagogue. Now, just keep this in mind. If, if the temple is like the corporate office, just to put it in modern terms, the synagogues are like the branch offices. So if you've got a bank with a corporate office but a bunch of branches, the synagogues are like the branches. And each sect of people, like individuals who spoke different languages, could go to different synagogues. Well, in Jerusalem, there were many of them. There was one in particular that belonged to the Pharisees. Well, that's what verse 9 tells us. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, meaning those who had just brought the accusation against him. Verse 10, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So Jesus is going to give them a living example of his authority. That they asked Jesus this question indicates something really significant. They're conceding that he has all of this kind of power. You've got people who are walking around who were deaf that can hear, who were mute that can speak, the blind can see. So they can't deny his power, so they decide to set him up. So what happens when one individual can't refute another individual's argument? But we see it today in the modern political world, and it's a very old political ploy. If you can't refute the argument, you go after the person's character. Well, that's what they're going to do. They're going to set Jesus up with what they think is a no-win situation and go after his character. So they're going to ask him a question about this man with a withered hand. So the Pharisees have chosen a man specifically to test Jesus because of the law of the Sabbath. The law of the Sabbath says, what about medicine? You can't give medical aid to anyone on Sabbath day unless it's life-threatening. Well, Dr. Luke tells us that this man's hand is actually shriveled up. His, his right hand is collapsed within itself. So Luke gives us these details. We've got this man whose life is not threatened, but he's dealing with this issue in his life. Tradition says the only justification for giving medical help on a Sabbath day is if it's life preservation. So here's what their reasoning is. If Jesus were truly honoring God, he would honor our ritual. He would honor our tradition, and he'd wait until another day. See, they're completely unaffected by the reminder Jesus just gave them. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. 
So verse 10 says they questioned him. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Thinking, we got him. This thought is, this is the perfect trap. See, they're not looking for truth. They're looking to dispose of him. Just don't let this part slip too quickly. How easy would it have been for Jesus to avoid this conflict completely? I think there's a great temptation in our world today for us to avoid what we think of as conflict. Jesus takes this issue head on. He could have instructed the guy, hey, uh, you know what, the Pharisees are hanging around. Uh, How about if you meet me tomorrow outside and uh, we'll deal with this? Or, Or maybe later, come back later. He didn't do that. Matter of fact, this is Shabbat when everybody gathers for church, when the community comes together to worship God. So he's in the synagogue. Lots of people are there. Why make such a public spectacle of this? Because the Pharisees are concentrated constantly on the negatives. Don't do this and don't do that. They're concentrated on the don'ts of life. Jesus is focused on the positives. What does he say? I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I came that your joy might be full in me. That's Jesus, so he's got this contrast between the two of them. Luke says he actually called the man forward himself. He called the guy right out and told him to come up there. Now remember, lots of people watching this, but Jesus is always in command, verse 11, and he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it? and lift it out. And I'll be honest with you, New Hope, this is where God hit me upside the head on Wednesday. I'm working through this text thinking, yeah, give it to him, Jesus. Love it. Another passage on the Pharisees. And they become our favorite target in the New Testament, don't they? I mean, we, we use them as constant examples of a whipping post saying, look at how much of a screw up those guys were. But here's where I had to check myself. Here is where we have a serious danger of hypocrisy ourselves. This issue of a sheep in the pit. Verse 11 is very specific about it. There is potential that every one of us this morning have territory we will not allow ourselves to go into until it becomes really precious to us. And so Jesus pushes their buttons When something affects us personally, the gloves come off. So let something threaten our finances, our health, our family, maybe even professionally. And the rules, they're movable. So Jesus is pushing on them in an economic area because he sees this in them. He sees this in us. So he starts dealing with them on a personal economic level, literally to find their breaking point, to see where their justification is for using things that they say are completely off limits until it becomes precious, until it affects your own personal life. The the best way I can illustrate this for you is to use myself as an example. I have to reach back into the history of New Hope to do this, and it just take me a moment to do it. When I was 17 years of age, I was part of a, a music touring group, and we traveled around Michigan, and I was part of a church in Muskegon. I, I've shared this with just very few people before, so you probably have never heard this, but in that period of time, we had a pastor in Muskegon, with a pretty large church, who left that church and he moved to the Lansing area. I never, 
had visited the Lansing area whatsoever, had never been here. And, and he called back to the former church where I was attending as a teenager and said to our youth group leader, hey, would you bring that youth group over to my new church in the Lansing area and do one of your musical presentations? And I'll have you do it before the whole congregation. So we came. We did the presentation. We ended with this really Baptistic type uh, old song that was popular in the 70s, but it had this phrase to it. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll be what you want me to be over mountain or land or sea. We get to the end of it, you know, crowd applauds, and our former pastor, who is now the pastor of that congregation, comes down the aisle without talking to his church he looks at those of us who are teenagers and says, you young people better not be saying that unless you mean it. Now, he could speak to us like a former pastor who saw over us and said, if you say to God that you'll go wherever he calls you to go and you'll do whatever he calls you to do, you better mean it. Otherwise, you'll be guilty of being a Pharisee and a hypocrite. Now, fast forward into my 40s. I finished my time teaching at Trinity Church, had resigned my position, and started visiting with other churches about becoming a pastor there. Uh, In that period of time, there was a church in Indianapolis of about 2,300 people that wanted me to come there. In that period of time, this facility became available to launch New Hope. Now, I remember saying specifically to my wife, I don't think that's what God's plan is. God intends for me to be in a big church. Lori pushed back pretty well in the way that only a spouse can do and said, really? You think you're too good for a small church setting? I didn't see that at all in my agenda. But God began revealing to me the Pharisee in my own heart, the capacity to draw boundary lines around what God will do and what God will not do and how he operates and how he does not operate. Now, you know the short story is that, obviously, we accepted the responsibility and launched a new church here, and in April of 2007, I'm standing on this platform in this very location, and what God had kept from my mind since I was 17 years of age hit me like a thunderbolt. This is the very building I stood in as a 17-year-old. The very location when the pastor walked back down the aisle and said, you young people better not say that unless you mean it. If God calls you to it, you better respond, otherwise don't say it. And the Pharisee was revealed. How many times have I been a Pharisee in my own life? How many times have you seen the sheep in the pit and try and decide God doesn't act like that? So Jesus pushes on their economic button because anyone with an economic interest is going to find a way to get into the pit and pull out a sheep. You're going to do whatever you have to do. That's why Jesus is pushing them that way. So here's what I think God really wants you to hear out of this. you got a friend in your life who's far from God. you got a sheep in the pit. you got a friend, a co-worker, whose life seems to be dismantling and coming apart at the seams and they don't know how to put it back together. Sheep in the pit. Do you have a family member who's desperately trying to find answers about who this God really is? What does a relationship look like with him? Sheep in the pit. That's why Jesus is pushing us on this very issue. He sees it in them and he sees it in us. Now, how do the Pharisees respond? Mark chapter 3 tells us specifically. 
3 verse 4, they kept silent. Because what are you going to do? You're caught. They're trapped in this illogical way of thinking of these unscriptural traditions. And their only recourse, stay silent. But inwardly, according to Dr. Luke, chapter 6, verse 11, they are filled with rage because he's really pushed their buttons. You feel the tension in the room in that moment? Jesus obviously is purposely creating it because he's dismantling their tradition. So since they won't answer, Jesus does. So he's looking around, studying his audience. Verse 12 says, How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he's letting the issue just float out there and simmer. Let them cook for just a little bit. As a matter of fact, if you read Mark, you see that he's got anger in his heart towards them because of their attitude towards these people. So that explains and helps us to understand verse 13 because I'm not quite sure quite how gentle Jesus was when he said this, verse 13. And he said to the man... Stretch out your hand. I'm going to say it the way I think he said it. Stretch out your hand. Because I'm thinking that he's got a little, well, I won't superimpose that on Jesus. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. Jesus has just answered the question through his action. Luke specifically said it's his right hand that was curled up. And stretched out, which would mean his power hand, his working hand. Now catch this. He has done nothing other than speak. Day one, God said, let there be. Day two, God said, let there be, let there be. Stretch out your hand. See, our God, the Creator, only needs to speak to His creation. Would you not love it if the very next verse read, the Pharisees saw it and they fell on their face worshiping God, saying, wow, this is indeed God. Do you think that's how they responded? I'm here to tell you it's not. It is not how they responded. No, no one would ever contend that sheep are more valuable than people. It just wouldn't do it. But in their daily choices... They've treated their fellow man with less value than these animals. What a danger is that? And on top of that, they keep on heaping pain upon top of crushing the human spirit by this meaningless religious tradition that they brought in. Understand, the Pharisees are not giggling in this moment. They're seething. Move forward to verse 14. It's the last verse. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus, we've said over the last couple weeks, especially as we were working towards Christmas, really surfaces the condition of Mark's heart. Jesus surfaces the condition of your heart. How we respond to that is up to us. What do we do with it? How do we respond to what he surfaces? The power of Jesus' argument has not moved the Pharisees whatsoever. They are not responding to him. And so in this, you can clearly see the depths of the darkness of the human heart. So 2015, moving forward, it should not surprise you when you see spiritual things very, very clearly and others do not. 
because they have hard hearts at times and they can't see God. Dr. Barnhouse astutely observed that at this point in time in the first century, this is when the clock stopped for Israel. As a matter of fact, he said it this way, it is at this point in history that Israel's clock stopped because they rejected Jesus. They totally have turned their backs on him. Now just to land this plane, going just a little bit touch deeper with you, while we wrap this up and move into communion, if we've said that Jesus surfaces the condition of the heart, how we respond to it is up to us. Here's how the Pharisees respond. They have concluded that keeping the law, and by that I mean their interpretation of the law, they would be righteous, meaning it would make them good with God. They could earn God's favor because they think that legal means moral. They've thought that legal means moral. And so if I keep the rules just right, God's going to like me a whole lot better. Let me put it in a modern term. There are crimes that are on the books today. There are legal, illegal things that you can do that are not sins. But there are many sins that are not crimes. Let me use an example. If you live long enough here in the United States, it's possible that in your lifetime you may see that what we do here at New Hope as a church, how we function as a church, may become illegal in the United States. There's legislation constantly attempted to legislate what takes place in a church setting. If a church is functioning in the way that we do and a law comes into effect making it illegal, we will not be immoral, but it can be illegal. So legalists have this confusion in their mind. They believe that legality and morality are the same. They are not the same. And legalists don't see this. They're always law-minded. They think that they're making themselves right with God. Law-abiding people are still sinners. So the purpose of the law was never meant to make men righteous. It was meant to prove the need for a Savior. That's why Paul said, the law was given as a tutor to lead us to Jesus, to help us to see him. So here's a quote I just want to wrap up with. Legalism is the cold-hearted enemy of grace. See, if you live in grace this morning and you celebrate the freedom that you have, there's a potential that someone's going to be throughout the course of this year or maybe in your past, in your lifetime history, trying to heap weights on you of the things that you need to do to earn God's favor. When he says, I've already given it to you in Jesus. So my take is this. Life is already tough enough without someone adding extra burdens onto you, unnecessary burdens. So Jesus said it better than that, though. He said it this way, Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're about to lift the cup of communion, and in the cup of communion, you hear Jesus saying, I got this. Rest in me. Come to me with your burdens. Rest in me. So the Sabbath, Old Testament, 
God's saying, rest in me, the New Testament cup, that's your sign that you're going to lift this morning. So let me read to you 1 Corinthians 11 before you come up and pick up the elements, just to remind you of what Jesus actually said. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 